Well, good morning, church. Good to see you all here. For those joining us online as well, uh, let me encourage you, uh, if you join me in turning to the book of Revelation chapter 3 this morning, as we continue looking at the seven churches that Jesus uh, writes a letter to in Asia Minor. And I'm tempted to say this morning, like, six down, one to go. Like, oh, because actually this has been... Uh, this has been a little bit of a hard series. Uh, some convicting things here, both to hear and to preach at times. And you know, every church, I think that we've looked at, if we're honest with ourselves, you know, they, they hold up a mirror uh, to our own lives, our own churches today. And we can see places that, you know, maybe, you know, we've fallen short as a church. Maybe places that we have made some mistakes and Christ is calling us, you know, back to that repentance, back to, you know, that place of intimacy with him. And it's been quite the journey. Uh, you know, we've looked at the church of Ephesus, uh, good church, but they'd lost their first love. They'd lost their passion. The church of Smyrna, they endured suffering, great suffering, but remained faithful to the end. Pergamos. Uh, the church that had allowed false doctrine uh, to enter into their beliefs. Church of Thyatira, allowed sexual immorality into their lives. Church of Sardis, who appeared to be alive, and yet Christ says they were dead, spiritually dead. And then the church of Philadelphia last week, as we heard, though they were small, though they were weak, little strength, they still had an opportunity, an open door of witness to the world around them. And now we come again to the last church, Church of Laodicea, uh, found in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. And if I were to give this church sort of a title about what kind of church it was, it would be a church that's lukewarm and loving it. Uh, church, Laodicea was lukewarm. It was a lukewarm, just comfortable church. And as I said, you know, um, we're about to hear from Revelation 3, verses 14 to 22 this morning. Uh, so if you'd like to follow along with me, uh, I'm going to read our passage uh, before we jump in. Uh, beginning in Revelation 3, beginning in verse 14, Jesus writes these words. He says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and solve, solve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him, and I will eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord God, once again, we want to come before you 
just humbly as your people with a hunger and a desire to hear from you. And Lord, as we open your word this morning, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be just active among us. That Lord, you would have just full access to our hearts and to our minds, that you would bring conviction where conviction needs it, where comfort where comfort is needed, and Lord, commitment where commitment is needed. And that Lord, you would do just a powerful work in our lives through just the preaching of your word uh, this day. And Lord, we just want to just dedicate our hearts, dedicate our lives, dedicate our time to you this morning and welcome you into our midst and into our lives and into our church. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, this morning we are coming to the final week of, you know, the seven-week tour of these churches in Asia Minor. And in that time, we've seen the good and we've seen the bad. But now as we set foot in the town of Laodicea, I think we get to see the ugly uh, when it comes to the church, which is actually kind of strange considering the town of Laodicea itself. Because if you were alive back in the first century and you happened to be a resident of the town of Laodicea, you probably would have considered yourself lucky considered yourself blessed. I mean, the real estate agents there didn't have to do much to, you know, sell this community to any prospective buyers. It would have been a great place to live and work and raise a family. Because Laodicea, it, it was situated, it was located at the crossroads of not one, not two, but actually three main trade routes in that region. And that meant there was an abundance of financial opportunities provided by this town. It even had, uh, if you could picture, a grand marketplace uh, running through town. Today we would say this was a town known for having an enormous, famous mall, if you can imagine a place like that. So in Laodicea, I mean, shopping was, was on the to-do list. Commerce was, was its lifeblood, and the people there, well, there's probably no other way to put it than to say the people of Laodicea were rich. Uh, they had money to spend. Disposable income was the norm for this place. And all of that money that they had came from three sources. Uh, first, Laodicea was basically a banking center for this part of the world. It was just a financial hub. And if you needed money exchanged, if you needed a loan, if you needed you know, a business deal done... Laodicea was just, it was a place that had what you needed. It was business friendly. And you know, as the old saying goes, you need money to make money. Well, Laodicea had money to make more money. It was just a rich place in and of itself. And secondly, Laodicea was also unique because they had a, a very valuable trade in black wool. Uh, the area around town was, was perfect for raising these very special black sheep. Uh, it all would be like, today it'd be like a copyright, some kind of, you know, financial secret something. But they had these black sheep, and the wool of these black sheep was coveted the world over, both for its color and for its just, it had a softness to it, apparently. That was very unique. And Laodicea used that, you know, they turned that opportunity uh, into an opportunity to establish a huge textile trade. They made clothing, the stylish black clothes were in demand all over the world. So you could say, not just a financial center, it was a fashion center as well. And then finally, 
Laodicea was known for its medical research because they actually created this, this eye salve uh, that was said to be a cure for, for all kinds of vision problems. So if you get a picture of that, they had gold, they had garments, and they had eye salve. That's what put Laodicea on the map. And you can kind of keep those things in mind because they'll come up a little bit later. But for now, basically, it all sort of adds up to a picture of a very highly successful, highly affluent, highly prized place to call home. I mean, if they had those, you know, the top 10 lists back in that day, Laodicea probably would be typically the number one place to live in Asia for medium-sized cities. And so often is the case, as goes the town, so goes the church. And this church that was established in Laodicea likely also would have been considered a great place to attend, a great place to call your church home, a great place even just to be seen. Uh, there's actually an excavation done of an ancient church that they found in the ruins of Laodicea. And even though the church dated from, you know, the third or fourth century, so quite a few years after this, they found that this church that they found had these huge columns, you know, at its entrance. And they had beautiful mosaics, you know, on the floors and all the walls. They even had a marble baptistry carved in the shape of a cross. So when most of the world's Christians were, were basically, they were meeting in barns. This church in Laodicea, was, was, it was like the Crystal Cathedral, if that reference still makes sense. And truth be told, I think that this church probably would have been the envy of a lot of the other churches in this region. You know, other churches that were struggling, other churches that were small, other churches that were poor, other churches that were being persecuted, could all look to Laodicea and see the promised land. They could see a church that had all the comfort, all the security, all the resource it needed, and more. If the pastor of Laodicea decided to write a book called, you know, How to Have a Wealthy Church, it would have been a bestseller. It would fly off the shelves in cities across the world as other churches, other pastors would try to copy that model for themselves. So we want to do what they're doing. Because from a worldly perspective, this church really did seem to have it all. But look at what Jesus himself has to say about this church. Beginning in verse 15, where he says, I know your works, and you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich and I have prospered, I have need of nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And I think that Jesus' words to this church would have had come as a complete and utter shock to them as they looked around at this amazing church that they, they had built. Because, you know, even today, we, we tend to we tend to measure the success of a church with three things. Sometimes we call them the three Bs. Uh, bucks in the bank, bums in the seats, and baptisms. And you know, this church in Laodicea was probably way ahead of any other church in at least two out of three of those categories. And yet this church is one of the only churches in the book of Revelation that Jesus says has nothing good to say about it. Not a single point of praise comes out of Jesus' mouth for this church. 
In fact, this church receives what I think is probably the harshest rebuke of any church in the Bible. As Jesus says in verse 16, I will spit you out of my mouth. Literally, this church was making God sick. And those words, that word in the original Greek was even more graphic. Uh, Strong's Concordance says it was physical repulsion. It was a desire to reject something with extreme disgust. This is not just a little tummy ache. This is projectile vomit that's on display here. And I really, I can't remember Jesus saying anything else like that in the entire Bible. I mean, we hear of God being grieved by people. We, we hear of God being disappointed. We have times of Jesus getting angry. But I, I can't recall Jesus ever being outright disgusted and nauseated to the point of vomiting. And it's such a graphic image of what Jesus calls a lukewarm faith. And the people in Laodicea would have actually known that feeling very well. Because for all of that, this church had going for it. You know, all the trade routes, all the sheep and all that stuff. The one thing that Laodicea lacked when it was founded was a reliable supply of clean drinking water. Which was made it all the harder to swallow, pun intended, when you considered the neighboring towns around Laodicea. Because just a few miles away, there was a town called Hierapolis, which was known for its natural hot springs. Even today, you know, people will travel to that region to soak in its waters. And then to the other side of them was the town of Colossae, which the book of Colossians is written to in our Bible. And Colossae got its water from mountain runoff and these cool, fresh spring streams. But Laodicea was forced to pipe in its water from a water source several miles away from the town. And you know, all of that time, that water running through those pipes meant that any water that got to the town was always lukewarm. And to make matters worse, the water was also kind of, it was full of all of these kind of minerals and sediment that gave the water a very bad taste. I actually saw a picture of somebody found a pipe and they cut it. And these old pipes, there's this nasty mineral buildup from all of the sort of crud that was constantly just settling in their water in this place. So get that in mind because Drinking the water in Laodicea was really only a slightly better alternative than dying of thirst. And as one commentary says, hot water heals and relaxes, cold water refreshes and revives, but lukewarm water is useless. And that's the image that Jesus is drawing upon to rebuke this church, that they were lukewarm in their faith. And a big part of that reason we see in verse 17 because Jesus says, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. And honestly, reading that, I, it's one of those things, it's like, I would think that's a problem most of us would like to have. Like, can you imagine being too rich? Oh, I always hear about people who win the lotteries and they say they're always broken. And it's like, you know what, give me a chance. Like, maybe I could be the guy. no. They were rich, too rich. In fact, twice in their history, uh, there was an earthquake in that region and, and it just basically destroyed the town. 
But this town of Laodicea, they were actually so rich that when Rome showed up and asked if they needed financial help to rebuild, the town said no. They said, no thanks. We said, we don't need your help. We're going to do this ourselves. And in fact, many of the, the structures that they built, they inscribed with the words uh, in Greek that meant out of our own resources. In other words, we built this with no help from anyone else. And they took pride in that. And, you know, I had a kid, a two-year-old like that once. Every time, you know, two-year-olds, every time you try to help them learn something, they look in the eyes and go, I doed it, like, I'm mine. <laughs> and that attitude of the town was contagious to this church. This church had that attitude of, we are going to build it ourselves. So when Jesus shows up and he says, you know, I've called you to be my people. I'm going to lend you my strength. I will give you my counsel. I will empower your lives. I will build my church. It seems that this church in Laodicea said, no thanks. Like, no, we can take it from here, Jesus. We can do it on our own. Out of our own resources. And they had so much money that they had no need left for God. To the point where Jesus even says in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. And I want you to just see this moment. Because incredibly, this is a picture of a Savior who has been locked out of his own church. And we often use that verse, you know, to call non-Christians to salvation. You know, is Jesus knocking on the door of your heart today? But the reality is that these are Christians who have no time or place for Jesus in their lives. And you may think that's, that's unbelievable. And you may even think there's no way that that could happen today. And yet there's a very convicting quote by A.W. Tozer that says, if the Holy Spirit were taken away from the early church, 90% of what they were doing would disappear overnight. But if the Holy Spirit were removed from our churches today, 90% of what we were doing would continue on pretty much as usual. Because we really do live in a culture where there's, there's so much affluence that people don't feel like they need God. After all, life for us, most of us is pretty good. So we just kind of have God on that sort of, you know, speed dial for emergencies. When we sort of run out of our own strength. We live in a place, you know, in a community where, where people are so talented and so educated and so trained and good at what they're doing. That we're just, we're not used to humbling ourselves and asking for help. Because we got this. We live in a society with so much consumerism. That can become easy to even treat our faith as a commodity. We live in a place where we have so many options available to us, but so many choices that we get to make from shopping to restaurants to entertainment that even following Jesus can become just another choice we think we can make, you know, for when it's convenient or, or when we're in the mood. Because we're so self-sufficient. But what it can all lead to is people who are living lukewarm, half-hearted, 
mediocre faith, all in our own strength. Where Jesus gets pushed to the edges of our lives and sometimes he gets pushed right out the door because we just don't have time. And you know, sometimes when we're living like that, we even know we're living like that. We even know there's, there's times in our life when there aren't any great breakthroughs in our relationship with Jesus. We know, you know, that things in our life are kind of just flat, spiritually. We get the sense that we're lukewarm in, in some areas of our lives. But sadly, when we look around at the people next to us in the seats, we see people who are all in the same boat as us. And we begin to think that that's what normal Christianity is. That normal Christianity is just going to church and then going through the motions. Because everybody else does it too. But it's not. And I've read this quote before, but it still rings true. C.S. Lewis once said, the only thing that Christianity cannot be is moderately important. If it's really true, then it deserves everything you've got. It's all or nothing. You can't, either you believe that Christianity is true and you let Christ determine the rest of your life or you should just forget it and go and do whatever it is you want to do because you can't have it both ways. That's C.S. Lewis' way of saying you can't be hot or, you know, don't be lukewarm. You got to be hot or cold. And that's why I think the key verse in this passage is really verse 19. Where Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Because if there's one thing that I would want you to take home from this passage this morning, one thing I think we need to learn from the Laodicean church, one way that Jesus' words here should change our lives, I would say that it should be to have us become zealous. As Christians, we should be living with a passion for Jesus. Refusing to be lukewarm, but, but seeking God with all of our hearts, pursuing him with all of our strength, hungering for him, thirsting for him, longing for him, and letting nothing stop us from living for Jesus in all that we do. And if our lives, if we, to do that, if we need to make some changes, we do that. We repent. We make the change so that we can follow hard after Jesus. Because that is his will for our lives and for our churches. And that is why Jesus also offers this church, this wayward church, this lukewarm church, he offers this church still a way back into fellowship with him. Because again, he says in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. It's an invitation. And it's an amazing invitation because if we were to stop there, to me, this is a verse that so demonstrates the heart of Jesus. This heart of mercy, this heart of compassion, this heart of grace for each and every one of us and each and every one of his churches. Because think about what's going on here. Imagine, imagine that you were a part of a group. In fact, you were the founder of that group. And you, you, know, you invited people to join you in whatever you're doing. And you kind of, you thought of each other as a family and you gave and you sacrifices and you know, just to show your love and your dedication to those people all around you. And then one day, the members of your group, they come to you and they tell you they no longer want you there. 
They, they no longer need you. You're, you're simply, you're in the way now. So they show you outside and they tell you not to come back and they lock the door behind you. What would be your response to being kicked out of that group? Well, I'd probably break a few windows and slash tires, you know, on my way to people's houses to salt their lawns or something like, it would get to me. But Jesus' response to that kind of rejection is to stay at the door and to knock and to keep on knocking and to keep asking people to let them back in with the promise of restoring that fellowship that has been broken. And in his mercy, Jesus offers this church a way back to to being the kind of church that Jesus wants them to be. And interestingly, he does it by reminding the, remember the three things that Laodicea was known for? They were known for banking and wool garments and eye salve. Well, what does Jesus tell this church that they need? Well, he tells them they need gold and they need garments and they need eye salve. In verse 18, he says, I counseled you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself in the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. See, Jesus is using, you know, the worldly goods, the, the wealth that this town took pride in to point this church back to the things that they needed for eternity. And first he tells them to buy gold, not just any gold, but gold refined by fire so that they can become truly rich. And what Jesus is talking about here is seeking out things of eternal value, things that last. As 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 6 says, In this rejoice, for now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though, through, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a reminder that there are bigger things in life, in our life, than the stuff we can buy. Bigger things in our life than just the worldly stuff that we depend on. And Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, beginning in 19, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moss and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. And this church in Laodicea, they'd stored up a lot of treasure on earth, but the treasure in heaven was sorely lacking. So Christ reminds us, as he reminds each and every one of us, what our real values and our real priorities should be. We should be investing in something that will last, something eternal, something that will not be burned up like chaff on the last day. We should be investing in our relationship with Jesus. That's what makes us truly rich. And then Jesus also tells them, secondly, to clothe themselves in white garments so they may cover the shame of their nakedness. And you know, in a city that was famous for their black wool and their fashion, again, those words would have stood out. Because you know, Reality, the people, the church in Laodicea probably could have won the best dressed church award, you know, year after year. Uh, And it's too bad that we often judge, you know, that's the way we judge the character of other people, you know, by the way they dress, the cars they drive, the houses they own. We make those kind of judgments about the kind of people they are. And we judge churches the same way. 
We often judge churches by their appearance. But you know, while men look on the outside, Jesus' concern is always what's on the inside, in the heart. And with that in mind, most of the people in Laodicea in this church were shamefully naked. And the only solution for them, what Christ says, was to seek white robes of righteousness from Christ. To trust in Jesus and his righteousness and not in anything else that their wealth could provide for them. They were, one, one commentary said, they were to put on Christ instead of put on heirs. And I like that. And then finally, Jesus tells them that they need salve, salve to anoint their eyes so that they could see. Because this church was spiritually blinded. Blinded by their wealth, blinded by the status symbols all around them, blinded to their own mediocrity. Because it seems all of that stuff that they piled up you know, on earth was beginning to block their, their view of heaven. They needed their sight restored. And you know, I think that the thing that they needed to see clearly, most clearly, was a vision of Jesus himself. And that's actually how Jesus begins this letter to the church. If we want to go back to verse 14, Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of God's creation. And those are words that should have reminded this church that Christ and Christ alone is the head of the church. And it's, what's really interesting, I don't know if it's coincident, never coincidence in the word of God, but it's interesting that the word Laodicea itself, it means people led, or, or mob rule almost. And, and what a reflection on this church, that this was a church that just they saw themselves as being in charge. But Jesus, again, reminds them how wrong that is. And we find three things about Jesus here that I think as Christians, we need to know, we need to know these things about him if we are to rightly follow him. And again, first Christ says he is the amen. In other words, he has the final word in every area of our church. He doesn't have to make a motion. He doesn't have to get a second. He doesn't have to hold a vote. His word is final every time in the church. He is the head of the church. He is the amen. And second, we hear that Christ is the faithful and true witness. And that means that Christ sees the church for what it truly is, not for the, the image that the church projects to the world around us. And this church actually, this church actually really reminds me of that, that story, if you probably know it, the emperor's new clothes. You know, where the emperor, he's tricked into walking through town, you know, blind to the reality of his own nakedness. Until that voice of truth rings out and says the emperor has no clothes. For the church, that voice of truth is Jesus. And that's what matters. What matters is how Jesus sees us. He is the truth. He is the true witness, the faithful witness. And then finally, we see Christ as the beginning or other translations, the, the ruler of creation. Or as Paul says in Colossians 1, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. It's this picture that all authority in heaven and on earth is Christ. And he is the creator and sustainer of all creation. And as Paul continues in verse 18, 
He says, and he is the head of the body of the church. And you know, it's within the church that the rule of Jesus over his creation should be most clearly seen in, in this world. This is what kingdom living is all about. Because we know, you know, one day every knee shall bow before him. Every tongue shall confess his name. But the church does that now. And all, even though all creation awaits the fullness of time, you know, for Christ to reign, as the church, Jesus should be reigning in our lives even now. He is the ruler and the head of the church today. And that's a lesson that the church in Laodicea had forgotten long ago. They had forgotten that Christ was to be their leader of their church. And they just started doing it themselves. They forgot that they should be depending on him and they depended on themselves. They forgot to surrender to his lead. They forgot to put Christ before any other earthly things. And when they did that, they found that they preferred comfort more than commitment to Christ. And Jesus rebukes them. And he tells them, you've got to you've, repent you got to make a change here, people. And to those who are willing to make that change, Jesus gives them this promise. Verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And here again, even in the promise, we see another picture of Jesus' rule. As he reminds you know, us, what the church is all about. Because the church isn't about programs. It's, the church is not about how big your budget is. It's not about having the best buildings or the most staff or the most entertaining worship teams. Church is about connecting people with Jesus, both for here, today, and for eternity, so that people can share that eternity with him. The church is about helping people take hold of the promise of his presence and his power. And as Paul tells us in Romans 8, 17, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. And the way that we take hold of that is by overcoming. And just as Jesus overcame through his obedience, we also overcome through our obedience and our commitment to Christ. We overcome by not settling for half-hearted faith or mediocre religion, but instead by wanting nothing less than zealous passion for Jesus. And that should be our call. There's a Robert G. Lee, a fiery Baptist from a previous generation, put it like this. If all the sleeping folk will wake up, if all the lukewarm folk will fire up, if the dishonest folk will fess up, if the depressed folk will cheer up, if the estranged folk will make up, if the gossipers will shut up, if all the true soldiers will stand up, if the dry bones will shake up, if the church members will pray up, then the Lord will show up. So as we close this morning, I just want to take a few minutes just to ask you, just to reflect on your life. To ask you to ask yourself, how would you describe your faith in Christ right now? Have you grown comfortable in your relationship with him? 
You know, do, do you know that you're sold out for Christ or are you, do you know you're selling out to other things? Do you feel that, that passion, that desire for his presence in your life or do you feel that distance, that, that gap where a red-hot faith once stood? You know, if you were to give your, your faith a temperature this morning, would it be hot? Would it be cold? Would it be lukewarm? And if you're hearing what I'm saying to you this morning, you need to know that if you feel like your faith is lacking, there is a way back. You need to know that Christ is still knocking. He's still waiting to come in, waiting to be welcomed once again, waiting for you to open that door to him. Christ is inviting you to seek him. He's inviting you into his presence to be with him. He's inviting you to leave everything else behind. And focus on him. And you know, my hope, my prayer for every person here is that we could, we could honestly say, God, before anything else in my life, I want to depend on you and you alone. I want, I want to need you. I want you to be real to me. I want you to be real in our church. I want you to reveal yourself to me more and more. I want you, I need you to transform my life into a life of passion and a life of praise. Because that is God's desire for us. It's his desire for his church to be living with a passion, living with a purpose, living with zeal, living with nothing held back, living without regrets, because nothing that we are trying to hold on to in this world can compare to the riches we find in Christ. We need to surrender our self-sufficiency and embrace a life surrendered to Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father God, as we've, as we've heard today, and Lord, even as we've heard in the previous weeks with those other churches, Lord, there are so many ways for us as your people and even for us as churches to get off track. And Lord, I just want to pause just for a few moments today just to ask that, Lord, in our own lives that you would search our hearts. That, Lord, you would open our eyes to places where we may have spiritual blindness. That, Lord, you would give us ears to hear the call that you are making to your church to call us back to yourself. To be a holy people. To, to, to stand upon your truth. And, Lord, to live in a way that we are dependent upon you and your strength in all that we do. And that, Lord, you would just ignite in our, in our hearts a passion that, Lord, if instead of lukewarmness, that, Lord, we would just, through your Holy Spirit, we would be zealous. That, Lord, we would seek you. That we would desire for you. We would, would long for you, hunger for you, thirst for you. Lord, thirst for you as a, as a person in a dry and desperate land who desires water to drink, to be refreshed. Lord, more than the air that we breathe, we long to long for you. Because, Lord, we don't want to just be going through the motions of our faith. We want to be people of genuine faith. We don't want to be comfortable. We want to be committed. And, Lord, we don't want to be self-sufficient people who just do it on our own. Lord, we want you to be our all in all, in all that we do. And, Lord, we desire to love you more than anything else in our lives. 
And the Lord, I just pray that you would do that work in our lives and in our church. In Jesus' name, amen.